being wed to her. His sister, who he loved so dearly, had also left him and not been able to care for him. And yet, in those dark, dark hours, he knew that his strength was in the Lord Jesus Christ. His desire was not to lose the love that God had given to him. As he said, O love, that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I got thinking on that this week. And man, I'll tell you what, I got so excited about the love of God and what He's done for us. And I'll tell you, it it does us good sometimes to go and think through some of these songs and the messages of them. To think of what God has done for us. And I'm glad we still sing the old hymns here. Amen. I I just do. I'm not saying that there's not some songs written by some good men in the day that we live. I'm sure there are. There's several good men that, that are doctrinally sound that write music and There are places like Bible Truth Music and and places like that that still produce good stuff. But I'll tell you, the depths of writing that these men had in these days, uh, we don't think these ways many times anymore. We don't don't write these ways. And uh, the joys we sing some of these songs. I love this song we sang this morning, He Lifted Me. He called me long before I heard, before my sinful heart was stirred. But when I took him at his word, forgiven, he lifted me. Oh, what a thought. His brow was pierced with many a thorn. His hands by cruel nails were torn. When from my guilt and grief forlorn, in love he lifted me. What a, what a great Savior. You know, I, I, I know that we ought to worship God. I'm not afraid of that word, by the way. It's been misused by a lot of contemporary style services that, hey, we're going to have a worship service here. Can I tell you this? There's nothing wrong with worshiping God. It's in the Scriptures. The largest book in our Bible was given for no other reason than to bring praise to the Lord Jesus Christ and to God Himself. We ought to worship Him. But can I tell you this? I don't think our public worship will ever be what it should be until our private worship is what it should be. Until we have time where we walk with God... We spend time with Him. And boy, He just, that moment when our hearts just swell and overflow with the God, goodness of God. And I hope that we have many of those sweet hours with Him, those sweet times. And I uh, want to encourage you in that. I, that. That song just was a blessing to me this week. And I wanted to share it with you and uh, the story behind it. It's been such a joy to me. Well, let's do uh, number 460, shall we? Number 460, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. What a fellowship, what a joy divine Leaning on the everlasting arms What a blessedness, what a peace is mine Leaning on the everlasting arms Leaning Leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting. We get to that second verse, and I love it when they use words like, oh. The idea behind this, that the expression of the thought they're getting ready to state is so powerful and so overwhelming to them that they use that word, oh. Think about this. Oh, how sweet to walk in His pilgrim way, leaning 
on the everlasting arms. Oh, how bright the path grows from day to day, leaning on the everlasting arms, leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms, I have blessed peace with my Lord so dear. Leaning on the everlasting arms, leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, <coughs> lasting arms. Amen. Well, let's turn over in uh, our King James songbook here. Number 463. I'm going to take my jacket off, folks. I'm sweating to death up here. I apologize again. It is just warm to me. I know some of y'all are freezing probably. Who can thrill the heart like Jesus by His presence, all divine? Let's sing it together. Who can cheer the heart like Jesus by His presence, all divine? True and tender, pure and precious. Oh, how blessed to call Him mine. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. And the fairest of ten thousand in my blessed Lord I see. Love of Christ so freely given. Grace of God beyond degree. Mercy higher than the heavens, deeper than the deepest sea. All that thrills my soul is He is more than life to me. And the fairest of ten thousand in my blessed Lord I see. Think about this third verse. I love it. What a wonderful redemption never can a mortal know. How my sins, though red like crimson, can be whiter than the snow. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me, and the fairest of ten thousand in my blessed Lord I see. Every need His hand supplying, every good in Him I see. On His strength divine relying, 
He is all in all to me. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. And the fairest of ten thousand in my blessed Lord I see. By the crystal flowing river, with the ransomed I will sing, and forever and forever praise and glorify the King. Oh, <coughs> He is more than life to me. And the fairest of ten thousand in my blessed Lord I see. Man, I don't know about y'all, I can't wait till we get there. By that crystal flowing river with the ransom I shall sing and forever and forever praise and glorify the King. I hope he puts me in the choir next to somebody that's got a really good voice. Because then I won't be ashamed to sing it out as loud as I can. Well, I'll tell you what. Can you, can you imagine when we get to heaven what it's going to be like? Oh, my. What a precious thought this morning. Well, let's take our Bibles, if you will. Turn to Daniel chapter number 3. I'm sorry, let's back up. Daniel chapter number 2. <clears throat> We're going to end up in Daniel chapter 3, but I want to just bring to mind just a very quick thing here in Daniel chapter 2 by way of introducing the message, and then we'll look into chapter 3 for our message this morning. Daniel chapter number 2. I had a sweet time in uh, Sunday school this morning, enjoyable time. And I want to encourage you to uh, tune in, be a part of those uh, lessons that we're going through the book of Exodus right now. And I love to see the hand of God at work, don't you? And uh, to know that not only is He the God of Israel, and the God that showed Himself strong to Pharaoh, but He's also my God. And what a joy that is to our hearts. In the book of Daniel, just by way of background, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, who was the first world great, great world empire after the Egyptian empire fell, and uh, was, was known for many, many years as the world uh, leader and had conquered the known world, and Nebuchadnezzar was largely uh, the one responsible for all of that. When they would conquer a land, they would come in oftentimes, and once they... Uh, their, their tactic was to uh, set siege around cities and capitals, and they would starve them out and basically make the city surrender. They didn't want to destroy the city. The idea was they wanted to assimilate that city into their empire. And so when they conquered a land, many times what would happen is the uh, armies would go in. They would choose the chiefest young men, those that were uh, the aristocracy, those that had been well-educated, those that were the finest, the cream of the crop, and they would take those young men back to the capital uh, of their empire, and <coughs> in this case was the city of Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar was there. And we remember the story in chapter 1 how they were going to fatten these boys up and then present them before the king and kind of parade their, uh, their conquest and look at what we've added to the kingdom king. And um, Daniel and the young men uh, that were with him, Hananiah, uh, Azariah, and Meshach, uh, I think, or I can't remember all their Hebrew names, but we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
And uh, they, uh, they took a stand, and they said, you know, we're not going to defile ourselves with the king's meat, the rich meats that they could have had, uh, the wines that they could have had, but they were not kosher. They were not the things that the Hebrew children were supposed to be eating. And uh, Daniel asked the uh, prince of the eunuchs to um, uh, let them uh, be on uh, kind of a, uh, just a pulse type of a meal and water and said after a period of time, uh, test us and see. And they found out that they were fatter and fairer and more knowledgeable than their counterparts. And so God blessed the faithfulness of Daniel and his friends. And uh, then they, they, they're put in positions of leadership among the young men there that had been brought from Jerusalem. And uh, in chapter 2, we find that Nebuchadnezzar dreams a dream. Now, we alluded to this a little bit in Sunday school. And uh, he dreams a dream, and he does not know the interpretation of it. He knows there's something significant to it. You've got to understand, before we had the completed revelation of Scripture, many times God would speak to uh, folks through dreams or through priests or men of God uh, in the Old Testament. Now we don't have those things because we have the completed revelation of God in our Bibles. We hold it in our hands and we know those things. And uh, so, But back then they had dreams. And this was a dream that was significant, even to what I believe was an unsaved uh, Nebuchadnezzar who did not believe in the one true God at this point. In his ministry, I have reason to believe that Nebuchadnezzar gets saved. I believe chapter 4 indicates to us that God used him to write one chapter of our scriptures. That's interesting for me to note. I think one day we may see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven because at the end of his reign, he had come to terms with the fact that God was the one true God and that all of the earth was to worship him. We find as we get into chapter number 2 that he asked his astrologers and his soothsayers to interpret the dream for them, and they could not. And so Nebuchadnezzar, in his anger uh, and his impatience, told, uh, told the guards, he said, I want you to take all of the uh, wise men, the astrologers, the soothsayers, take them all out and cut them into pieces and make their houses dunghills and, and get rid of all of them, and, uh, just because the few couldn't do it. And so they came to Daniel and his friends and said, listen, the king has said we're to kill all of you. And if you look with me in verse number 24 of chapter 2, Therefore Daniel went in unto Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon, bring me in before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. And Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste. And he said thus unto him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. And the king answered and said unto Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, astrologers, magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets. Man, boy, can you just see the boldness. That almost sends chills up my back. You can almost picture Daniel standing there before the most powerful man in the world at the time, saying, you're, you're wise men, you're soothsayers, you're, you're magicians, those guys, they can't do this, but there's a God in heaven. Let me tell you about Him, King, and He can answer those secrets for you. By the way, when we get to those points where we have nowhere else to turn, remember this, there is a God in heaven. He knows these things, and He's in control of them. He maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar, what shall in the, be in the latter days? Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. And he goes on to tell the king uh, the interpretation of the dream. Now notice as we get to verse number 36. He says, This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. 
Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven. Now notice this. This is an interesting phrase to me. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. Where, and wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field, and the fowls of the heavens, hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. Now, uh, it's interesting to me because I, I believe that Nebuchadnezzar, at least at this point for sure, is not saved. He does not believe in the one true God. He may not even know much about the God of heaven at all, except for the little bit that maybe Daniel has already indicated to him. And yet, the Bible says that God had put him in that place of authority. We're getting ready to have a, a, an election here in the United States of America. Can I tell you that this, we need to be faithful to vote the way our consciences dictate, and I would pray and hope that we would vote according to the principles of God's Word. However, let me say this. Whatever the outcome of the election is, God put them there. God ordained it. God put those things in place for His purposes. And we ought not fret. We ought not be afraid. But we ought to be bold and always do what God has continued to give us to do in Scripture. And always be faithful to those things. And then we find here <clears throat> that he tells this king in chapter number 2 that he is a king of kings. He's, he's, getting, he's gotten a kingdom. He's gotten power. He's gotten strength. He's gotten glory in all of the earth. There's not a tree that has a bird in it that the king of that particular uh, empire was not uh, had, a, had authority over. Now, you can imagine this king... Uh, thinking, boy, ha, wow, I'm a king of kings, huh? Yeah, out of all the kings. Wow, look at me. I am really something. And you say, Brother Greg, how do you know he did that? Because that brings us now to chapter number 3. <laughs> Let's look at verse number 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and breadth thereof Six cubits, he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, and the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. He, he sets up this big image, this monument to himself. Boy, I am a king of kings, and uh, God is uh, the God of heaven is made me all these things, and boy, aren't I something, and the people need to know it. So I'm going to do something. I'm going to put up a, an image here that is going to be my legacy. And if they don't remember anything else through the centuries, they're going to remember that there was a king in Babylon that was a king of kings. Now notice as we get to verse number 3, he says, Then the princes, governors, and captains, and the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together, under the dedication of the image of Nebuchadnezzar, the king, that had set up, that they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O na people, nations, and languages, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, cornet flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, that you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has set up. That's the problem. I want us to notice some things here as we get into this story. First of all, I want you to notice the pride of the king. We've made this statement before over, over the years in preaching, that every sin that we commit has its root in pride. There's not a sin that is committed that does not begin with pride, with a seed of prideful thoughts. 
It's interesting to note how much the Lord deals with the issue of pride in Scripture. He tells us in the New Testament that we're not to think ourselves higher than we are or more than we are, but we're to look every man to the, on the things of others. You know, there is a list of things in Scripture out of all of the things that God uh, calls a sin in Scripture. You know, there are some that God really hates. And God calls them abominations. In fact, He names six of them, and then He adds one to it. He says, yea, seven are an abomination. Boy, we like, to, we like to zoom in on one of those, especially when it talks about the idea of uh, homosexuality and those types of things. Certainly that is in the list of abominations. But can I tell you this? It's not the first one on the list. It's interesting because in understanding how the Bible was written, both in the Hebrew language and in the Greek language, which are the two languages that these books were penned in for the most part, they had a, a way of writing, a structure of writing, and we call it the law of first mention, the idea being that when there was a list of things given, they would always put that which was the most important at the very top of the list, the very first thing. God comes out and He tells uh, the, the uh, writer in Scripture that these six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven, are an abomination. And guess what the very first one on the list is? A proud look. Boy, we take a stand against homosexuality, and we should. We take a stand against the shedding of innocent blood in abortion, and we should. But boy, would to God we could take a stand against pride. It is the downfall of each and every one of us in the area of sin. Why are we so prone to sinning? Because of our pride. Satan comes to us. It's the oldest trick in the book. He did so to Adam and Eve in the garden, didn't he? When he talked to Eve and was trying to deceive her. He said, God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, ye shall be as God. Knowing good and evil. Eve, don't you want to be like that? And he appealed to her pride. Nebuchadnezzar is no different. He's a lost man. His flesh is in control of him. Satan certainly has had influence in him. And there's no reason to suspect that his temptation towards the area of pride was withstood. But rather he succumbed to it. He looked at it and said, boy, even the gods are telling me. Daniel's God even said it. I'm a king of kings. I'm going to erect this golden image. And as people look at this golden image, they're going to think of this great, great king that I am. In fact, I want them to worship this image. That was a problem, wasn't it? By the way, we're living in a time where pride has been the downfall of this nation. It's interesting to note the Bible says that only by pride cometh contention. Yet you look at the unrest that's in our country today. Can I tell you this? Pride is at the root of it. The Bible tells us that God said, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves, the very first thing to do. Isn't that interesting? And pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. But the first one, the most important, humble themselves. Is there an issue of pride in our lives? Oh, absolutely. We all battle it. I've said it before. There's been a lot of times people have preached on this thing of pride, and we get, we get proud of our humility sometimes, don't we? 
it's one of those things. It's a, it's a constant battle. It's a tug of war. I heard a fellow say the definition one time that I loved. I thought this is the greatest definition of humility I think I've ever heard. He said, being humble is not thinking less of yourself than you ought. It's not thinking more of yourself than you ought. It's simply not thinking of yourself. I thought, boy, what a great, great definition. To think on the things of others, that's what the Bible says. To look every man on the things of others. This pride of the king causes there to be a downfall. There, there is a problem and a result. By the way, pride, the Bible says, goeth before destruction, doesn't it? And a haughty spirit before a what? A fall. Now, understand this, that when Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and set siege around it and, and was able to bring the, na- the, the children of Israel into Babylon, he took more than Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He took a whole host of them. In fact, some people believe he took maybe as many as 150 or 200 young people from the city of Jerusalem. Where are they? Where are they? Notice as the Bible says this in verse number 8, Wherefore, at the time, at that time... Certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spake and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth that he should be cast into the burning midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews. Do you see that phrase? There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the providence of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And we spend a lot of time preaching on the faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we're going to preach on that. Even today we'll talk about it. But my question in this whole ordeal as we read this thing is, where are the other Jews? Where are the rest of them? There were more than just these three young men and Daniel that came to this place, and yet there were these Jews who knew what was right and knew what was wrong. But when the king put the pressure on, because of the pride of his heart, he puts the pressure to him, he puts the screws to him, puts them in a place of making a choice between obeying man or obeying God, though those Jews did not, did they? Where are they? They're out there in the field with everyone else bowing down to the image. By the way, may God deliver us from Christians today that will obey man rather than obey God. I'm thankful that we're in a day and a time that we have had great religious liberty in my lifetime. But as we are watching the events of these days, we're realizing very quickly that the religious freedoms that we have enjoyed for so long are quickly being taken away are quickly causing men and women to be persecuted for their beliefs. Just this week and seeing some people that were peacefully, peacefully outside singing hymns outdoors were arrested. You have people sitting in stadiums watching professional ball games, not many because they only allow the select few without masks on, and yet there's a lady that goes to a Little League ball game, doesn't wear a mask, and she gets arrested. Can I tell you this, my friend? We are going through some persecution times where there are going to come times where people are going to come into our churches and say, you cannot preach the gospel here. You've got to shut the doors. You've got to lock them. May God give us the strength of character 
to say whether we should obey God or whether we should obey man, you can choose. But as for me, I'm going to obey God. You say, boy, Brother Greg, those are great words. I'm for you. I'm, I'm going to be there. But the test is when it comes. Because we all like to think we would be willing to even die for the cause of Christ. And yet the truth is, oftentimes we're not even ready to, to live for Him, much less die for Him. If we won't live for Him, there's no way we'll ever die for Him. If we don't take a stand during times of religious liberty, we'll never take a stand during the times of religious persecution. I ask this question, where are the other Jews? There were certain ones. By the way, they were the minority, weren't they? They were the few. Vast amounts of Jews that were there at this point (coughs) weren't standing. They were kneeling. They were bowing to the image and they were worshiping. Not only do we see the pride of the king that brings error, but we see the compromise of people of God. Compromise of the people of God. As they begin to say, my life is more valuable to me than obedience. But there are certain Jews, aren't you glad of that? Verse number 12. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set up over the affairs of the providence of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They have not served thy gods, nor worshipped the golden image which thou hast set. And Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury, again, good indication this fellow is lost as lost can be. In his rage and fury, command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <coughs> then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do ye, serve, do ye not serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, Harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made. Well, but if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? <laughs> Boy, if he only knew, right? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O king, Nebuchadnezzar, o, o Nebuchadnezzar notice this. We are not, what's the next word here? Careful to answer thee in this matter. Now, some people would read that and say, they were saying, we're not going to mince words here. We're we're going to just tell you how it is. But the word careful here, when it was written by the King James translators, literally meant to be full of care. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God. Being full of care for nothing. Don't, don't, Don't be full of care. Don't be anxious. You know what the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were saying here? They're saying, we're not full of care. We're not even anxious about this. King, this doesn't even scare us, is what they were saying. They were almost flaunting it, weren't they? The fact that they had no fear of Him whatsoever. They said, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of thy hand, O King. They were confident of that fact. And by the way, they could be, couldn't they? Because they knew that either by life or by death, God was going to deliver them. 
By the way, when it comes time for you and I to take a stand for God, we need to understand this truth. That whether it be by life or by death, God will always deliver us. I want you to notice the principles that they founded their, their decisions upon. The principle that they founded their decision upon was not based upon their circumstances. The principles that they based their faithfulness on was not even on their own personal character. The principle that they based their faith on was the faithfulness of God to them. They said, even though we may not be faithful, even though we may be imperfect, we have a God in heaven that we know is going to always be faithful to us. By the way, can I tell you this? There's not been one time ever in your life from the moment you've gotten saved that He has not been faithful. Can I tell you this? There's not been a moment before you got saved that He was not faithful. God is faithful. Not only has He begun a good work in us, but the Bible says that He'll be faithful to perform it. That same good work in us. The principle of the faithful that they lived their life by was not based upon their circumstances. It was not based upon pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps and being moral young men and men of character. Although I think men ought to be men of character and men of integrity, that was not what they were holding to. They were holding to the fact that God was going to be faithful to them. Be it known unto thee, O king. He says in verse number 18, But if not, (laughs) I love this, But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. I love that phrase, but if not. Isn't that amazing? They said, we're not anxious, we're not scared. Our God's going to deliver us out of your hand, O king. And even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow. Isn't that amazing? Whether God chooses to deliver in this life or whether he takes us by death. Back during World War II, the British Army, the militaries, had fought and they were, had their back to the English Channel the Battle of Dunkirk. <clears throat> While there, the Germans had cracked their code and they could not get word back to England about their situation or about uh, plans for evacuation without the Germans intercepting and knowing it was just a matter of time before the Germans were going to overrun them. They didn't know what to do. And one of the radio men there in Dunkirk had an idea. He said... Uh, if you'll give me the opportunity, I think I've got something that'll work. And he sent a transmission, radio transmission, across the English Channel that was comprised of three words. And the three words were, but if not. That's it. Back on the mainland in England, they were looking and trying to find uh, all the code books. What in the world was this dealing with? But if not. And one of the radio operators in England said, Sir, I think I know. And he went and got a Bible off the shelf. He went to this story. How that these men had said, O King, our God will deliver us. But if not, we will not bow. And with those three words, the British military was sending the message, We need to be delivered. But if you don't deliver us, we will not surrender. Winston Churchill took it to the radio waves. They found everything that floated in the nation of England and floated it across the English Channel. Rowboats, sailboats, anything they had. It was known as the bathtub navy. 
They go across the English Channel, and just as they were within range of the artillery shells of the Germans, God, in His provident hand, rolled a fog in from the ocean and caused the Germans not to be able to see. And the vast majority of the English army was saved that day. All because two radio men understood this principle of Scripture. But if not, our God will deliver us. But if not, we're not going to bow. We're not going to surrender. Why? Because God is faithful. Because God is faithful. I want you to notice their perseverance. Would you look at that with me for a moment? Then Nebuchadnezzar, verse number 19. Full of fury. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury. And the form of his visage was changed. I think that means he got red in the face. I mean, veins popping out. He's like really mad. His visage was changed. His face was changed. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. He commanded the most mighty men that there were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their hosen, and their hats, and their other garments, and there were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent, the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Now, I don't know about you, I think in my life, if I were in that situation, and I was standing there, and I was one of the three, and maybe one of the three said, O king, uh, our God will deliver us, but be it known unto thee, O king, we will not bow. I'd probably be sitting there looking at him like, are you sure about this? <laughs> okay, God's going to deliver us, king. That's our answer, final answer. And then, God, and then the king says, okay, heat the furnace up a lot more than it was. Bind them. And about the time those soldiers came and the mighty soldiers came and bound me up in ropes and began to lead me toward the furnace, I'd like to think I'd be faithful. But how many in the face of that would say, okay, king, all right, I get your point. These young men persevered. Could you imagine what was going through their minds? Okay, God, any time now, you can go ahead and deliver us. They get closer. The heat gets so intense, so strong that even the men that are taking them up to the furnace to throw them in are struggling getting close. A number of years ago, I was burning some debris down in Florida, and the fire began, the wind whipped up, and the debris got a lot bigger than I thought, and the flames were taller than this ceiling is here in, in our field, and I took a garden hose, and I thought, well, I'm going to try to uh, get it to cool down a little bit. It's way too hot, and way too dry out here, and I couldn't even get close enough to the fire to get the stream of the water to it. It was so intense, pushing me back. Could you imagine as they got closer and closer and that heat began to hit? And they persevered, were resolved. God will deliver us. And even if not, we're not going to bow. They get to the edge and they look down and they see that fire. And for the next few moments, could you imagine what's going through their minds? We sit here and we know the outcome of the story and we don't think through what it must have been for them to go through this. 
Can I tell you this? There are times we're faced with challenges and we make decisions and we base them on Bible principle and we say we're resolved and we're firm. And then the difficulties begin to set in. We begin to pay the price for that decision. Do we persevere through it? Or do we say, okay, I get the point. I better not. These young men walked all the way up. They were thrown into the fire. And I like what the Bible says here. Verse number 22, or verse number 23, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished, rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose walking. You see that? Walking in the midst of the fire. And they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Can I tell you, this is another good illustration of why our King James Bible is so important. You know other verses, other versions of Scripture will translate verse 25 to say, and the fourth is like a son of the little G-O-D-S, God's plural. Nebuchadnezzar had full realization at this point who the God of heaven was. The fourth is like the Son of God. He knew it. Instinctively he knew it. But boy, I'll tell you what, we look at this. And these boys, they're not huddled together. Even if they found, I've heard some people say, well, they fell into the cool part of the flame. Not if the guys outside were killed by the heat. Yeah, anybody ever been burned? You ever found a cool part of that? They were not. And they're walking around in there. Now, this, this was a refuse dump. I don't know. Maybe they're looking for people's discards. Maybe it was a garage sale to them. I don't know. But they're walking around in there free of concern and free of care. They're not worried. They're not anxious. And God shows up. <laughs> Boy, could you imagine? Could you imagine the deliverance of an almighty God? You know, God could have just easily spoken and delivered them from that fire. God could have easily just sent an angel to go down there and take care of it. But God Himself comes down. He walks in the midst of the fire with them. I want us to see the power of God's deliverance when we are faithful. You see, Brother Greg, sometimes the martyrs were delivered, the people that were going to be martyred were delivered from the hands of those that were going to kill them. Sometimes they were not. They went through the torture. But can I tell you this? In either case, God was with them. And God brought them through. I love the verse in Psalm 23 that says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? <laughs> Why did the psalmist write this? For thou art with me. You go through some trials in life. Can I tell you this? There is a God in heaven. 
And He's there and He's faithful to us. The power of God's deliverance. We're entering a period of history and time where I don't know what the future holds. All I know what the Bible says, and I, I pray for those times to happen soon. I pray for God to return. But if God tarries His coming, I don't know what's going to happen in the near future. could be that we have to pay a price for our religious beliefs. May God help us to be faithful. But whether the persecution comes or whether it does not, may we as God's people purpose in our hearts that we are going to be faithful. Not because we're good Christians. Not because we want to be people of character. But because of His faithfulness. Because God has been so faithful to me then I must be faithful to Him. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. Lord, what a joy. Oh, what a joy it is to read these pages and to see such things. Lord, we read and we're disappointed in the fact that there weren't more of them that stood up to the king. But Lord, I'm thankful for the three that did. Lord, we're living in such times that there may come a time for us to have to pay a price for what we hold to. May You help us to have the strength to be faithful. May we put our eyes upon You and Your faithfulness to us. And Lord, whether we have to give a, a stand and an account during times of persecution or whether we have continued religious liberty, I pray that You would help us to purpose in our hearts to determine that we are going to be faithful regardless of the cost. Father, help us today, we pray. There may be some that have gone through trials and burdens. Don't realize and understand the fullness of Your faithfulness to us. Perhaps they've come to a place where they've questioned whether You're even there, whether You care. Lord, may we be reminded this morning that You are faithful. When everything else fails, I pray that you'll bless the invitation. Lord, if there's someone here today that does not know you as their Savior, they did not know this morning that they, if they were to die, that they would go to heaven, I pray that you'd help them to come forward and let us take the Bible and show them how they can be saved. For Christians that are here today, I pray that you would help us to purpose in our hearts, to be encouraged by the example and the story of these three young men, that we would purpose in our hearts that we will be faithful to the end. I pray that you would bless the invitation, use it as you would see fit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.